Welcome to Folkways, an auditory stroll through the rich and fascinating folklore of Britain and Ireland. The beliefs and culture of people who made this cluster of northerly islands their home. From music to psychogeography to what to do if you notice the devil following you to church. It's a long, strange trip and there are no guarantees you'll be home in time for dinner. Hello! Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4, where I've been cooking up a little series for you on no less than one of my favourite topics ever, the other world. Hopefully you make it back at the end. Enjoy. A core element across many myths and folk tales is that of an other world, a realm or realms plural that run parallel to our own, into which mortals such as ourselves bowling about one day in the sunshine are described as sometimes having entered into. But what are we to make of this? First off, This is one hell of a topic within we must necessarily cover thoughts on landscape, liminality, and the changing attitudes to our place in the cosmos. How do these alternate realities relate to our own? Are they separate, interlinked? And if so, how does one arrive there? Not to mention, are these references to the other world that we find across sources even describing the same place at all. We have to start here, surely, before considering the beings that we regularly find in folklore, the she or the fair folk, the puka, revenants, brownies, mermaids, you name it. You'll often casually be told in a folk story that a being either came from or returned to the other world, often after meddling with us poor mortals for a bit, Sometimes the reference won't be as explicit as that, but will instead be given markers that we'll soon see are commonly linked to passage into other realms. For example, uh, abundant greenery far beyond the norm, bewitching music across the moors, or a significant change in the light. There is a different space that is being alluded to or often directly referenced. But what is it? Anun, Tiernanog, Avalon. Are these types of fairyland? Are they the afterlife? Perhaps versions of a Christian heaven or that other toastier one down south? Or are these the dreamy mental realms of artists and poets? Indeed, when Michael Longsley was asked, where does poetry come from? He replied, if I knew that, I'd go and live there charmingly playing into this idea of inspiration being another country like France. A great deal has been lost, and we should acknowledge that before progressing. Yet, through our myths, folk tales, burial rites, and ancient monuments dotted across the landscape, we can see just about a faint trail of breadcrumbs. It takes your eyes a moment to adjust to the light, and then you might start making out the lines yourself. The path goes cold in several places, often for many miles, before picking up again in the distance. In these next few episodes, come with me as, noses to the ground, we head off into the hills round stones and stories to follow the trail. Welcome to Folkways, Season 2, Episode 4, The Other World. To highlight that we're moving through a slightly altered landscape on our journey, we will be looking at our progress today through a mirror. You find yourself standing in a room. The light is low, it's somewhere around dawn, you can faintly hear the chorus of birds outside. The walls are plain, painted a light colour, and you look down and see bare floorboards beneath you. 
The room is notable for there being nothing in it, save for a large oval mirror directly in the centre. The frame and feet are chestnut in colour. You move towards it, so you are now only a few feet away. In the gloom, you see your familiar image looking back, although there's something a little different today. You can't quite put your finger on what it is. As you continue to study your double, the image begins to shift slightly, though you remain standing stationary. The lines begin to morph outwards, distorting your features like a fairground mirror. The lines and colours then begin to rearrange themselves. You're no longer looking at a person, but now a type of landscape. It takes a while for the images to settle, you moving again slightly closer to get a better look. Part 1. Dead Can Dance The mirror is showing the landmass of Ireland, where it is now zooming into its west coast. An enormous dolmen is now forming in the mirror. Four feet support its vast flat capstone, which lies slightly on a tilt. This is the famous Polnabrone. What are we to make of these enigmatic structures? Academic literature exploring their role or roles naturally continues to evolve. Dolmens have been thought of as, most obviously, tombs, but also ceremonial sites on popular walking routes, to there being simple markers to show different groups' claims to land. And though you'll be less likely to read this in academic literature, many who enjoy sniffing around ancient sites have noticed they fall in a certain alignment with each other. So, what's the answer? Are dolmens tombs to the ancestors, ceremonial temples, territorial markers, or are they built to tap into what their makers may have perceived to be lines of power in the landscape? As Ian Soulsby writes, these structures, which seem to have been more than only burial mounds, probably fulfilled a number of ceremonial and territorial roles. Whatever the exact ratio of how these different sites were used, one aspect seems to be occupying a chunk of that pie chart, their link to the dead. At this dolmen in County Clare, carbon-14 dating of bones indicates the burials took place here over the course of 600 years, starting in around 3800 BCE. Over 600 years. That makes it sound like a lot of bodies, but actually, only 32 people's remains were found. Clearly, there was a selection process as to who would be buried. We can only speculate what this might have been, although men, women and children were found. Of the adults, only one was above 40. So, rather than a mass graveyard, Polnabrone shows a careful choosing of participants, if you like. Interestingly, the remains were not fully intact skeletons like we'd lay out in a churchyard. Rather, these were odd pieces of a torso, showing the site was not being used strictly as a burial place, but rather as a type of commemorative site there is some evidence from Neolithic tombs in Wessex, for example, the bones were periodically removed and returned or rearranged. As you might sit under the large capstone, your tribe's progress is all buried directly, compactly beneath your legs for your consideration. Whilst not all comparable monuments contain human remains, and it is important to underline this, Many that do show a significant amount of intergenerational planning, serving as types of portals to the ancestors. Communities at this time were becoming increasingly settled and stable, 
and such rights are thought to represent the attempt to establish a communal or tribal identity. The image in the mirror now begins to change again. You're looking at what appears to be a type of hill. You see there are lots of others around it in the distance. These are burial mounds. Then, above them, you see a whole host of people rising up out of the earth and making towards you. They shimmer slightly, their edges not quite definable. I'm wondering why the mirror has decided to show you these curious structures to kick off this otherworldly exploration. Let's keep these in our minds as we continue on. It's perhaps unsurprising, the folklore is often concerned with these ancient sites. It's surely inevitable that themes of the supernatural abound around these places. Strange lights have been seen emanating from them. Fairies are said to haunt Pentre Evandolmen in Pembrokeshire, Wales. Local legend has it that the monument is a doorway to the other world, guarded by child-sized beings dressed in soldier uniforms and red caps. Talking of fairies or the she, they are also said to emerge in great numbers from burial grounds on certain nights. But where has this link come from? In regards to the fairies, wouldn't we expect them to be skipping around a summer meadow or something enchanting like that? Why would they be connected with places that hold links to the dead? There's a lot to unpack in that question, so we're going to have a look at some folk tales to see what they say. The magic mirror is swirling and changing again. It seems we're in Cornwall from the looks of things, moving over a moorland. This is what was once known as Selina Moor, although no longer, and William Bottrell somewhat famously recorded a tale about this area in the late 19th century. In the mirror now sits a man, a young farmer called William Noy. He is seated on a stool by a blazing fire and he is about to speak. He went missing a few days ago. He was eventually found and had a rather wild story to relay. This account is from Bottrell's collection. The night having been clear, William thought he might as well make a shortcut across the moor and save nearly a mile, as he had often done before in summertime, instead of going round by the stony bridle path. But his horse, though was pretty much used to finding his own way, wanted to keep the usual road, and his rider, to bulk him, pulled farther off towards the Pendria side of the common than he would otherwise have done, and went on till he found himself in a part that was unknown to him. Though he had been, as he thought, over every inch of it that man or beast could tread on, both in winter and summer. Getting alarmed at the strange appearance of everything around him, he tried in vain to retrace his steps, then let the horse take its own lead. Yet, instead of proceeding homeward, the horse bore William to a land so crowded with trees that he had to alight and lead his steed. After wandering miles and miles, sometimes riding but often afoot, without seeing any habitation in this strange place, which he believed must be out of burying, but in which parish, he couldn't tell. He at last heard strains of lively music and spied lights glimmering through the trees and people moving about, which made him hope that he had arrived at some farm. His dogs slunk back, and the horse wasn't willing to go on, so he tied him to a tree, took his course through an orchard towards the lights, and came to a meadow where he saw hundreds of people, some seated at tables eating and drinking with great enjoyment apparently, and others dancing reels to the music. He saw a damsel dressed in white, who stood on a leaping stock just beside the house, which was only a few paces from him. The revellers, farther off, were all very smartly decked out, and they seemed to him, at least most of them, 
to be a set of undersized mortals, yet the forms and tables with the drinking vessels on them were all in proportion to the little people. The dancers moved so fast that he couldn't count the number of those that footed jigs and reels together. It almost made his head giddy only to look at their quick and intricate whirling movements. He noticed that the damsel who played the music was more like ordinary folks for stature, and he took her to be the master's daughter, as, when one dance was ended, she gave the crowd to a little old fellow that stood near her, then she went round the tables and filled the cups and tankards that those seated and others handed to be replenished. Then, while she started up a new tune for another set of dancers, William thought she cast a side glance towards him. The music was so charming and lively that to save his soul he couldn't refrain from going to join the dancers in a three-handed reel, but the girl, with a frown and a look of alarm, made a motion with her head for him to come with her round a corner of the house, out of sight. When out of the candle glare and in a clear spot where the moonlight shone, she waited for him. He approached and was surprised to see that the damsel was no other than a farmer's daughter of Selina, one Grace Hutchins, who had been his sweetheart for a long while until she died three or four years ago. At least, he had mourned her as dead, and she had been buried in Burian Churchyard as such. When William came within a yard or so, turning towards him, she said, Thank the stars, my dear William, that I was the one to look out to stop you, or you this minute would be changed into the small people's state like I am. He was about to kiss her. Oh, beware, she exclaimed, embrace me not, nor touch flower or fruit, for eating a tempting plum in this enchanted orchard was my undoing. People believed, and so it seemed, that I was found dead on the moor. What was buried for me, however, was only a changeling, or sham body, never mine, I should think, for it seems to me I feel much the same as when I lived to be your sweetheart. As she said this, several little voices squeaked. Grace? Grace? Bring us more beer and cider? Be quick! Follow me into the garden and remain there behind the house. Be sure you keep out of sight and don't for your life touch fruit or flower, she said, conducting William, who desired her to bring him a tankard of cider too. No, my love, not for the world, she replied. Wait for me here. I'll soon return. Sad is my lot to be stolen from the living and made housekeeper to these sprites, she murmured, quitting the garden. Over a few minutes, she returned to William, led him into a bowery walk where the music and noise of merriment didn't overpower their voices, and said, Rest yourself whilst I tell you what you never dreamt of. William seated himself, and Grace related how, one evening, about dusk, she was out on Selina Moor in quest of strayed sheep, but missed her way among the ferns higher than her head, and wandered on for hours amidst pools and shaking bogs without knowing where she was. After rambling many miles, as it seemed to her, she waded a brook and entered an orchard. Then she heard music at a distance, and proceeding towards it, passed into a beautiful garden with alleys all bordered by roses and many sweet flowers that she had never seen the like of. Apples and other tempting fruit dropped in the walks and hung overhead, bursting ripe. This garden was so surrounded with trees and water, coming in every here and there among them, that, like one who is so-called pisky-led, all her endeavours to find a way out of it were in vain. The music, too, seemed very near at times, but she could see nobody. Feeling weary and athirst, she plucked a plum that looked like gold in the clear starlight. Her lips no sooner closed on the fruit than it dissolved into bitter water which made her sick and faint. She then fell on the ground in a fit and remained insensible, she couldn't say for how long. Finally, she awoke to find herself surrounded by hundreds of small people 
who made great rejoicing to get her amongst them, as they very much wanted a tidy girl who knew how to bake and brew, one who would keep their habitation decent, nurse the changed children that weren't so strongly made as they used to be, for they needed more beef and good malt liqueur, or so they said. At first, she felt like one entranced and hardly knew how to find herself in such a strange company. Even then, after many years' experience, their mode of life seemed somewhat unnatural to her, for all among them is mere illusion or acting and sham. They have no hearts, she believed, and but little sense or feeling. What serves them, in a way, as such, is merely the remembrance of whatever pleased them when they lived as mortals, maybe thousands of years ago. What appear like ruddy apples and other delicious fruit are not. The sweet-scented and rare flowers are no other than such as grow wild on every moor. Looking at William for a moment with a melancholy expression, she sighed and continued. I'm now getting used to this sort of life and find it tolerable, the more so because the whole tribe behaved to me with a great kindness. Oh, my dear William, don't be such a noddy as to be jealous, for they're no other than vapour, and what they think they love is no more substantial than fancy. And the old withered men, one can almost see through them like puffs of smoke. May the powers deliver them from their weakly frames. And indeed, they often long for the time when they will be altogether dissolved in air and so end their wearisome state of existence without an object or hope. William had noted that many of the revellers bore a sort of family likeness to people he knew, and he had no doubt but some of them were forefathers who died in days of yore. She also told him, but he didn't remember exactly the words she spoke, that she was the more content with her condition since she was enabled to take the form of any bird she pleased and thus gratify her desire to be near him so that when he thought of her but little suspected her presence, she was mostly hovering round and watching him in the shape of some common small bird. Grace assured William of her everlasting love, yet as long as nature would permit him to retain his mortal form, she would rather behold him in the flesh and blood than see him changed to her state. She also told him that when he died, if he wished to join her, they would be united and dwell in this fairyland on the moors. Within this story, we have clear reference to another place and how both Grace and William separately find their way into it. The first thing to note about this other place is its extreme beauty. Grace says that the entry to this realm saw her, quote, pass into a beautiful garden with alleys all bordered by roses and many sweet flowers that she had never seen the like of. However, this great beauty seems to be illusory. Grace uses the word sham. The initial exotic nature of the plants and fruit turn out not to be so, and our simple garden variety seemingly charmed to look otherwise. Secondly, this on first look beautiful place undeniably has a connection to the dead. We of course have Grace herself, who is meant to have died three or four years earlier. Indeed, her funeral in Burian is mentioned. We also have that line there. She also told him that when he died, if he wished to join her, then they would be united and dwell in this fairyland on the moors, meaning his death would grant him natural passage here if he wished. But we should also pay attention to the revellers, William says many of them bore a sort of family likeness to people he knew, and he had no doubt but some of them were forefathers who died in days of yore. And whilst they're clearly all having a bit of a hootenanny, dancing wildly and ordering poor Grace to keep getting them more booze, some are described as 
almost see-through like puffs of smoke. Grace says they have no heart and little sense or feeling. What serves them is merely the remembrance of whatever pleased them when they lived as mortals maybe thousands of years ago. So the story is explicitly telling us these are not just random phantasmagorical beings, but they're directly linked to humanity in some way. I wouldn't say they are human, as we have this odd line, merely the remembrance of whatever pleased them. The word that sprung to my mind when reading that was echo, an echo of life, albeit from the sounds of it, primarily the good bits, parties with riotous feasting, music and dancing. This also makes me think again of Grace's word sham. Not only are the fruit and flowers illusory, but that this party is life as we know it also seems to be in question. The third point of note is, it seems you're free to come and go to this place unless you eat or drink or you join in the wild dancing. If we recall, Grace only speaks to William when she sees him heading to the dance floor. At that point only does she intervene. When the fairies start asking her to fill up their tankards with cider, and William says he'd quite like some too, she also forbids him the drink. She makes clear that to either drink or jig will cause him to become trapped in his host's world, like she is. And we have this somewhat sad comment that she'd rather he lived a full life and she merely watched him occasionally as an unseen bird, than he become trapped in this type of shadowland with her. This shows her love for him. She wants him to be happy, rather than for him to satiate her own loneliness, which surely would be a tempting option. We note, of course, that eating fairy fruit is how she became trapped herself, with the plum turning to bitter water that sickened her. More illusion here, and this one rather sinister, a severing of her humanity that she never gave her consent to. The mirror is still showing the revellers expressions of pure joy as a young woman in white continues to serve them. And we're going to very briefly now visit some comparable Irish tales. In what ways do they relate? The mirror is now moving again to show a well-dressed lady reading something. This is Lady Jane Wilde, mother of Oscar, holding her celebrated book, Legends, Charms and Superstitions of Ireland. As she reads to you, allow whatever pictures to appear in the mirror before you. This is November Eve. It is esteemed a very wrong time amongst the islanders to be about on November Eve, minding any business, for the fairies have their flitting then and do not like to be seen or watched, and all the spirits come to meet them and help them. But mortal people should keep at home or they will suffer for it, for the souls of the dead have power over all things on that one night of the year, and they hold a festival with the fairies and drink red wine from the fairy cups and dance to fairy music till the moon goes down. There was a man of the village who stayed out late one November Eve fishing and never thought of the fairies until he saw a great number of dancing lights and a crowd of people hurrying past with baskets and bags and all laughing and singing and making merry as they went along. You're a merry set, he said. Where are you all going to? We're going to the fair, said little old man with a cocked hat and a gold band around it. Come with us, Hugh King, and you will have the finest food and finest drink you ever set eyes upon. So Hugh went with them till they came to the fair, which was filled with a crowd of people he'd never seen on the island in all his days, and they danced and laughed and drank red wine from little cups. And there were pipers and harpers and little cobblers mending shoes and all the most beautiful things in the world to eat and drink, just as if they were in a king's palace. 
Then they all laughed and laughed so loud that everything seemed shaking and tumbling down from the laughter. And the dancers came up and they all danced around Hugh and tried to take his hands and make them dance with them. Do you know who these people are and the men and women who are dancing around you? Asked the old man with the cocked hat. Look well, have you ever seen them before? And when Hugh looked, he saw a girl that had died the year before, then another and another of his friends that he knew had died long ago. And then he saw that all the dancers, men, women and girls, were the dead in their long white shrouds. And he tried to escape from them, but could not, for they coiled around him and danced and laughed and seized his arms and tried to draw him into the dance. Their laugh seemed to pierce through his brain and kill him. And he fell down before them there, like one faint from sleep, and knew no more till he found himself next morning, lying within the old stone circle by the fairy wrath on the hill. Still, it was all true that he had been with the fairies, no one could deny it, for his arms were all black with the touch of the hands of the dead, the time they had tried to draw him into the dance. The Dance of the Dead It is especially dangerous to be out late on the last night of November, for it is the closing scene of the revels, the last night when the dead have leave to dance on the hill with the fairies, and after that they must all go back to their graves and lie in the chill cold earth, without music or wine, till the next November comes round, when they all spring up again in their shrouds and rush out into the moonlight with mad laughter. One November night, a woman of Shark Island, coming home late at the hour of the dead, grew tired and sat down to rest, when presently, a young man came up and spoke to her. Wait a bit, he said, and you will see the most beautiful dancing you ever looked on, there by the side of that hill. And she looked up at him steadily. He was very pale and seemed sad. Why are you so sad, she asked, and as pale as if you were dead? Look well at me, he answered. Do you not know me? Yes, I know you now, she said. You were young Brian that was drowned last year when out fishing. What are you here for? Look, he said, at the side of the hill, and you will see why I am here. And she looked and saw a great company dancing to sweet music, and amongst them were all the dead who had died as long as she could remember, men, women and children, all in white, and their faces were pale as the moonlight. Now, said the young man, run for your life, for if once the fairies bring you into the dance, you'll never be able to leave them any more. But while they were talking, the fairies came up and danced round her in a circle, joining their hands, and she fell to the ground in a faint, and knew no more till she woke up in the morning in her own bed at home. And they all saw that her face was pale as the dead, and they knew that she had got the fairy stroke. So the herb doctor was sent for, and every measure tried to save her, but without avail, for just as the moon rose that night, soft Low music was heard around the house, and when they looked at the woman, she was dead. Alright, so what's going on? First of all, though these tales were recorded in the 19th century, it's hard to pin a date on their origin. They likely represent a significantly older tradition being passed down until Bottrell and Wilde collected and published them. And thankfully they did put in this work the world a far richer place for having these collections of Cornish and Irish law respectively. In all three stories we've looked at today we've got firstly some kind of a party or shindig Music and dancing is mentioned in all of them, 
Next, we've got a mortal who comes across this knees up. We've got a link to the dead. We've got what I've put in my notes as consequences. All three mortals become aware that no matter how sweet the music is, there's a bit of a problem. All three are essentially outright told that this party might not be what it seems. In the Cornish tale, of course, Grace tells William in great detail what the issue is and that he must not eat, drink or dance under any circumstances. In the first Irish tale, Hugh King seems to be having a jolly old time until he's asked, do you know who these people are and the men and women who are dancing around you? It's only after this question that he seems to have any awareness at all of the unusual situation and he then attempts to leave. And in the last Irish story, we have the warning delivered from the young man who sidles up to the resting woman. It's this last warning that I found the most interesting. So the dead young man, although the woman notes he's sad, still seems rather friendly at first. He strikes up a conversation with her and says if she'd like to see a magnificent sight that she should cast her eyes on a nearby hill where she'll see some beautiful dancing. Once he's got the woman's attention and she's looking, he then completely changes his tone and delivers the ominous line, now run for your life. I'm fascinated by the ambivalence of this man. If he'd wanted to really help her, wouldn't he have put the run for your life bit first rather than get her to dreamily gaze upon a nearby hillock? If she's in mortal danger, maybe it's not the time to watch them dancing. Perhaps some of it's been lost in the recording of the tale, but taking it as it is, it reads as either deliberate cruelty or shows confliction on his part. After all, he did deliver the warning, it was just far too late to be of any use. So loosely, we've got party, mortal, dead guests and consequences. Maybe you've got another subheading or two that could also go in there. If you haven't guessed so far, this episode is concerned with the other world's link to the dead. Well done. You'll often find this curious marriage across folktales, which at first glance can be a bit perplexing. This strange idea that what we might think of as a type of bright and beautiful fairyland is inhabited by the walking or often dancing dead. I'm wondering why the mirror showed you Polnabrome Dolmen near the beginning of your journey. We know many of these monuments in folklore have connections to the other world, but I'm curious if showing you Polnabrone is to highlight humanity previously having very different relationships with the dead. We don't do death that well today. There isn't really a place for it. We have the funeral when a loved one passes. Maybe you'll get a week off work as compassionate leave and then the rite is over. If we do end up talking directly about death in our day-to-day -day lives, even for a few moments, even lightly, we check ourselves and we'll often say, oh, sorry for being morbid. I opened this show saying that, to consider the other world, we have to consider changing views of our place in the cosmos. What if we saw life and death radically different to how we see them today? How differently, then, might we treat the bones of those who have passed? We don't have time to wade into ancient cultures' funerary rites right now, but I say this to make the point that we're likely coming at these stories from a vastly different cosmological view. In more modern times, this juxtaposition between a wild party and the dead seems rather jarring. Why would the dead be in a beautiful land having a knees up? Shouldn't it be some shady, doomy, cobwebbed place? I mean, this is a genuine question when I say, why? Why should it be like this? 
that death should be seen as dark and creepy, a favourite word in English when describing this topic, can really be seen as representative of our own awkwardness with it, our own unease. As just one example of a shifting in attitudes, it used to be common practice to lay a place at the table for a departed loved one on a significant date or dates where they could dine with the family. In certain areas, this was completely normal up until very recently. The wonderful Dr. Jenny Butler makes the point that if you now told people that the dead were coming to tea, they'd more than likely find this somewhat disturbing. The dead? Perhaps imagining some kind of groaning zombie handling the IKEA crockery. A more flexible and relaxed view of the interplay between life and places beyond life has really been lost. So, whilst the dead dancing to jigs and reels isn't necessarily as eerie as it first seems, there certainly is a dark element within these stories. The warning that each mortal is given that I mentioned earlier should be taken seriously. Hugh King wakes up in a fairy wrath to find his body covered in the handprints of the dead, and although the tale doesn't tell us what happens from there, I think we can assume that being literally touched many times by death likely isn't good for one's longevity. With the old lady, after the fairies surround and dance around her, she's not long for this world and next day the haunting fairy music envelops her cottage, and she passes. As far as we know, it's only William Noy in the Cornish tale that makes it, his warning from someone who loves him being sufficient to save his skin. But why in the other world that is described in each tale the consequences for mortals joining in the party so severe? Well, let's first start off thinking about what is being offered to the person. It seems in this other world, the guests get to leave all their earthly worries at the door, as it were, and are invited to dance and make merry like they could only otherwise dream of. To dance like this, to dance with the fairies, is to shake the weight of the world off, the weight that is our birthright. We're given the option to do this in this other world, quite a tempting proposition, especially after a particularly rough day at work when our enthusiasm for life might have been sorely tested. How delightful might it be to hear distant music on the hills, to see bobbing lights and to be welcomed to this new place by faces with a great warmth. To dance with complete abandon, zero self-consciousness or earthly woe. Humanity has a long use of alcohol and other substances to help us edge closer to some of these euphoric states. Demonstrably, it's something we're drawn towards, and don't look at me like that, like you're above it all. The dance on the hill or in the woods with our otherworldly hosts represents a cutting of our mortal coil. This is so because, unfortunately, we don't get to dispense of our fleshy, earthly concerns in this life. We are married to them from our first to last breath. To have these removed, to dance and feast without them as if they'd been cut by scissors, seems to be some kind of violation of a code and the human, in these stories, is not permitted to return after to the world of flesh and bone. The realm of these surface-like, beautiful images filled with folk who may not be alive in a way that we would understand, and then, on the other hand, the world of the heavy weight of the human condition these two places do not mix, or that's my reading at least, of this extremely common theme in folklore, where mortals party with the fairies and are then not allowed to return home 
Either that, or they do return, and some terrible fate befalls them, again ending their life. But is this the land of the dead, or just somewhere where bizarre things are possible? So, to my reading, it's ambiguous if the fairies that occupy the other world described in these tales are actually the dead or not. In folklore, it's a common theme that on Samhain, Halloween, the hills open up and the fairies and the dead are free to mingle with humanity. It's possible these hills are a type of code for burial mounds or barrows. Indeed, the Irish fairies, the she, are known as people of the hollow hills. This becomes significant when we consider that, in Irish mythology, the Milesians drive a tribe called the Tua de Danann into the hills. Very interestingly, the Tua de Danann have become associated with the fairies, so this original mythology may be contained in the notion of fairies or ancestor spirits rising from these barrows. Like I said though, whether the fairies or the she are actually the dead is slightly ambiguous. What we can say, without any doubt though, is folklore finds them connected. In many folk tales, the fae and the dead are described separately but as dancing together. Sometimes the meaning seems interchangeable also. As example, in the tale of Hugh King, it ends by saying there was no doubt he'd been with the fairies, for he was covered in the handprints of the dead. So, thinking about what we've looked at so far, we can deduce the other world in these tales has a timeless quality to it. It doesn't matter if your heart stopped beating 50 years ago, you can still dance as if it didn't. It's also a pleasing and joyful place, as we've also looked at, but one that mortals should take extreme care in. All is not as it seems. Whilst this episode has focused on deathly themes, it's essential to point out this is only one aspect, however. The other world is also associated with slips in time, inspiration, gifts and joy. I think it's interesting to first highlight its darker aspect however, so we know the path ahead is somewhat dangerous and any journey to the other world should never be taken lightly. Think of William Hugh and the woman of Shark Island before venturing towards those lights on the hill. The magic mirror is swirling again, colours and shapes rearranging themselves. They begin to pool in the top centre, where they start forming your face once more. That's enough for today, you think, and you're about to leave, when you see something on the floor at the foot of the mirror. You bend down and pick up what looks like a small bone. Strange, since you're sure it wasn't here when you came in. You decide to take today's clue with you. Thanks for listening to today's show. Stay tuned for this month's Almanac, where we muse over the coming weeks. Folkways is the work of myself, Ashley, with musician Big Big Sky. Get more from him on streaming platforms and social media at big.big.sky. Connect with the show on Instagram and YouTube at Folkways Channel. If you'd like the Folkways tree to continue growing and bearing fruit, please consider watering its roots. You can become a treasured friend of the show, in return enjoying instrumental soundtracks, letters in the post, giveaways, hidden blog entries, and coming soon, folklore-inspired meditations. 
or how about leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. This allows the show to grow so others can take enjoyment from it also. May the gods of the soil, sky and links of your ancestral line bless you. It's now time to tune into Folkways FM for July 2022's Almanac. The ship is approaching Ravenglass on the edge of the Lake District, I've been told. So without further ado, let's try and pick them up. Welcome to July 2022's Almanac, where we consider the heavens and the hedgerows for the hopefully sunny month ahead. Let's first start off with a poem by Laura Gilpin. This is Two-Headed Calf. Tomorrow, when the farm boy finds this freak of nature, they will wrap his body in newspaper and carry him to the museum. But tonight he is alive and in the north field with his mother. It is a perfect summer evening, the moon rising over the orchard, the wind in the grass. And as he stares into the sky, there are twice as many stars as usual. July, named in honour of Julius Caesar. In Irish, it's Ull. Welsh, Gufanav. Cornish, Misguthérin. Manx, Jerry Sauri. Scots Gaelic, Inchuha. The Anglo-Saxons knew this as Afteraletha, which follows last month, June, when we had first Letha. The warmer part of the year saw many fairs being held in days of old, and we've still got many today. They used to go by a bewildering amount of names, including fairs, feasts, fates, wakes, revels, ales, treats, mops, and so on. They're often quite a big deal, and it might be hard for us to appreciate what these might have meant for people before the mid-20th century, especially those rural workers whose chance for socialising might have been limited. Interestingly, in 1871, it was clearly all getting a bit out of hand as the Fairs Act came into being, which went like this. Where certain of the fairs in England and Wales are unnecessary, are the cause of grievous immorality, and are very injurious to the inhabitants of the towns in which such fairs are held, and it is therefore expedient to make provisions to facilitate the abolition of them. As perhaps testament to this, on the 27th of August 1865, A 19-year-old George Jew from Lower Hayford, Oxfordshire, recorded this in his diary. Hayford Feast. The drunkenness of this day has been most abominable. Very few people at church, but public houses full. It would be no loss if there were no feasts. And talking of feasts and fairs, this made me think of Fairlop Fair, an ancient event that originally took place on the first Friday in July around a huge oak tree in Epping Forest that was reputed to be 36 feet in circumference. Sadly, the oak was blown down in 1820, and here's a fun fact. Its wood was used to make the pulpit of St Pancras Church, Euston Road, London. So if you happen to be in the area this month, why not pop by, continuing to say hello to the tree, this time of year. On the 14th of July, it is good old St. Swithin's Day, so be sure to thoroughly check the skies as it's believed whatever the weather is on this day will remain for the next 40 days. If you woke up in Galway on the 1st of July, the sun rose at 5.13 and set at 22.06. Glasgow, the sun rose at 4.36 and set at 22.04. And Guildford, the sun rose at 4.50 and set at 21.21. Though of course we've got more light than this time last month, 
For over a week now, we've started having to give some of it back, and by the end of this month, we'll have lost over an hour of light. So just be mindful to squeeze as much as you can from these glorious summer evenings. The moon was new on Wednesday the 29th of June, and will be full on Wednesday the 13th of July. This is another supermoon, which is where the moon went closest to the Earth in its orbit coincides with a full moon, making our satellite look particularly big, bright and beautiful as it shines down on summer meadows, chimney stacks and coastlines. This month's full moon on Wednesday the 13th is known as the Thunder Moon, Wart Moon, Hay Moon and Mead Moon. Once again, because of the relatively bright nights at the moment, stargazing isn't the easiest, however you shouldn't have a problem spotting the bright and shining star Vega, which is high overhead at the moment. Vega forms part of the constellation Lyra, which looks like a small slanted box, or a parallelogram should I say. Lyra represents the musical instrument, the lyre. So hunt down this bright star of Vega with the little box Lyra the Lyre. Close by you will see Hercules doing his thing, and close to him you'll spot Draco, who looks like it is snapping at Hercules. What do you know about the dog days of summer? The phrase is actually a reference to the fact that during this time, the sun occupies the same region of the sky as Sirius, the brightest star visible from any part of the Earth, and part of the constellation Canis Major, the Great Dog. This is why Sirius is sometimes called the Dog Star. In Homer's Iliad, probably composed in the 8th century BC, but representing an earlier tradition, Achilles' approach towards Troy, where he will slay Hector, is illustrated through an extended metaphor about the baleful effects of the return of the star Sirius. Quote, Priam saw him first with his old man's eyes, a single point of light on Troy's dusty plain. Sirius rises late in the dark, liquid sky. On summer nights, star of stars, Orion's dog they call it, brightest of all, but an evil portent, bringing heat and fevers to suffering humanity. Achilles' bronze gleamed like this as he ran. And even up to quite recent times, the dog days were regarded as an evil time when malign influences wreaked havoc, people became ill and dogs ran mad. For foraging, find cherry and cherry plums, which, although like cherries, are clearly not, yet neither are they plums. Their Latin name nicely reflects this puzzle, plum that bears cherries. <laughs> Raspberries, meadow sweet, and elderflowers at the beginning of the month can also be found too. This is the time of year many of us are thinking about our pending summer holidays. Thinking of something to get us in the holiday mood, your challenge this month is to try and hunt down the 1976 film Nuts in May, which offers a slightly different spin on the traditional summer break. I'm sure many of my listeners are nodding sagely at this recommendation, but if there are any of you out there who haven't seen it, it's a TV film that was made for BBC's Play For Today series. Uh, I've seen you can find odd DVDs knocking around on eBay, but in the show notes you'll also see an option to stream it that I found for a couple of quid. Quick disclaimer, this is not going to be for everyone's taste, however if you like dry, toe-curlingly cringe stuff like The Office, this film might become a friend for life. I won't give anything away apart from watch out for a particular musical scene. Till next time. That was interesting, wasn't it? To see the show out, here is a few lines of The Magic Apple Tree by Susan Hill. 
We take plates and bowls and mugs or apples and peaches in hand and eat whatever breakfast we have each foraged for in the garden, on the wooden seat beneath the apple tree, sitting on the step or on the edge of the little pond, watching the first creamy-petalled water lilies unfurl, flatten out and gradually reveal their yellow hearts and orange stamens. The petals are in densely packed layers like flowers cut out of paper. The dog Tinker is at my feet. The cats come padding across the grass to sit and wash themselves thoughtfully. It is a good time. No rush to school. No rush to do anything at all. Jessica finds an ant's house under a stone and gazes and gazes at the seething millions. Chippers, get the butter out.